In, a, in my former life, I was a school teacher, and it's really fun uh, because I get to encounter my students all the time. In fact, <laughs> I have students, former students of mine, it's a richness of being a teacher. It's great. Right, Kelly? It is a beautiful thing because that relationship goes on forever, and it is great. But as a teacher... And I think this is true of every teacher that I know. At the end of the summer, and school is going to start, I would have this nightmare. And this happened every year. It was a nightmare. And the dream was, I was in the classroom, in the front of the classroom, and the kids were completely out of control. And they were doing all kinds of stuff, and no matter what I yelled or did or whatever, it did no good. It was a nightmare. Then I became a principal, and I still had the nightmare. But in my dream, it was no longer students that were out of control. It was the teachers. <laughs> we were in a teacher's meeting, and they were, they were just worse than students. A little secret is, is that in most conferences, Teachers are the worst audience there is. I'm telling you, it remains true. Where we lived in Missouri, there's a conference center there, and <laughs> they had a teacher's conference there years ago, and they still talk about it, how those teachers were so out of control. This is not about teachers being out of control. Now I'm a pastor. And what do you suppose my nightmares are now? <laughs> this pandemic has had a bit of a nightmare to it, I must say. In each of those scenarios, though, here's the thing that's common. There are no rules. The rules are all broken. The rules are gone. And nobody's playing by the rules. And utter chaos reigns. And it is a nightmare. So... We're studying the Ten Commandments. They are rules. And if we don't follow the rules, the same thing is going to happen. Imagine a board game. You have people over and you're playing a board game, and every board game has rules to it. Every game has rules to it. Even little kids playing cars and trucks or dolls. You listen to kids as they're playing, you know what they're doing most of the time? Making rules up. Right? No, you can't do that. And it's continually developing over time to, to arrange themselves, to, to bring order into what they are doing, to make sense of it. But when one breaks the rules, everybody gets ticked off. No, you can't do that. We are built, we must live by rules. Without rules, it's chaos. The Ten Commandments that we are studying reflect the holiness of God. If you took each commandment and studied it, I guess that's what we're doing, isn't it? And you imagined one person who could follow all the rules perfectly, that person would be citizen of the century. 
because they would get along with people. They would live in harmony. They would follow the rules exactly right. In fact, if we all did that, it would be an amazing place in which we live. And in fact, when people follow the rules, things tend to go more harmoniously. When the rules, the Ten Commandments, are perfectly followed, the only person we see is God. He is the only one who can do that. So the Ten Commandments reflect the holiness of God. That's why he gave them to us. They also reflect upon us and our sinfulness. The Word of God tells us there is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is nobody on this planet other than Jesus who has ever followed the law exactly and kept it. Because the Word of God tells us if you break one, it's as if you've broken them all. Our sinfulness. The law provides a moral compass for us, you know. How do I live my life? How do we live our lives? It's a moral compass. Many years ago, the author Frank Peretti, you remember that series, those of us who are older, remember Piercing the Darkness and all of that. Um, In the second book, Piercing the Darkness, Sally Beth Rowe was the main character. Sally Beth Rowe. And in that book, this girl who doesn't know God, she doesn't know about God, she doesn't know about his word, doesn't know about Jesus, is seeking truth. She's going around seeking truth. How do I live my life? How do I know the right way? What is truth in my life? And she almost goes insane because she doesn't know what her moral compass is. And so everybody can tell her, everybody can tell you or me how to live your life But based on what? Based on the law of God. Because it's perfect. It is the perfect moral compass. When we have the rules, even as little kids who are playing by their rules, there is great freedom within those rules. We enjoy much more what we are doing when we're playing within the parameters that have been given. And there's freedom within that, and it's a really good thing. So the law of God is really a reflection on him and a reflection on his character. The law of God, then, is good, even as God is good. Psalm 19, you know these verses. In Psalm 19, the law is mentioned six times. And, it's, and the word for the law is a different word each time. And then there's a descriptor, an adjective that comes after that describes God's law. So listen for them. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, interesting way of putting the law of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. 
even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And so, we embrace God's law. We want to know God's law because it tells us how to live our lives. Therefore, we study his law and we apply it in our lives. That is why we are doing this series on the Ten Commandments. So we can learn more about how God has laid out for us to live our lives. And because it is a reflection on him. Before we dig into the commandment of the day, murder, I've had a number of people say, well, what kind of visual are you going to do? You wait and see. First, I want to go back into Genesis. I want to go back to the very beginning. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to take a look here at how God views life itself. I think when we do this, suddenly that little commandment, number 6, makes a whole lot of sense. We are where God has done, he has created everything except for humans. And so in verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let's jump to chapter 2 now. Uh, And I'm going to just do a couple of verses here we're going to read. The first one is uh, verse 7 in chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And now we'll go to verses 18 on. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The creation of human beings. There is much detail here given for how God formed us, humans. 
He takes great care to show us what he has done, more so than any other thing. It's very clear that the implication is is that God sees life, humans, as very precious. There are two takeaways. Life is very precious. If life is sacred, the other one is that we are made in the image of God. Humans are made in God's image. We are precious. We are, our life is sacred. And we are made in the image of God. What does that even mean, to be made in the image of God? Out of OCS, that's their theme this year, Imago Dei, in the image of God. We should have OCS students come up here and share. That'd be great. We won't do it right now, but what does that even mean? to be made in the image of God. We talk about that. I like the way John Piper put it in his most recent book that is just coming out called Providence, and it's a big honking book. And so I, I got it. Corey, did you, did, you, did you order it yet? All right, you did already. It's like 700 some pages long. It's huge, but it serves as a great um, resource. And so here's what Piper says about the image of God. Whatever else it means to be created in the image of God, this much is clear. The purpose of images is to image. We carve images of people and build statues of them in order to portray those people, to put them on display. Thus, I'm going to stop right there. If we were all to go take a tour of your home, would we find any photographs up? Well, on a shelf, on the wall. For those of you who have kids, I'll bet so. Somebody walked into ours and go, oh, this little hallway, it's the shrine for your daughter. Oh, be quiet. Come on. <laughs> those, those photographs are, are images of the person they're a picture of that you will see and remember and all that that means when there is an image that is mounted. You put them on display. Thus, when God creates human beings in his image, puts himself on display, and commands that the earth be full of such images of himself. It is clear that God's goal in creation is the display of God. He is aiming at a world filled with worshiping human beings. Humans who are an image of God. There is much implication in that. That as we consider one another, each one of us is an image bearer of God. Life is precious also. It has been ordained by God. You know these verses in Psalm 139, so well quoted and and written up on plaques and, and all kinds of places because they are very powerful and they are very important. Here's how God sees life. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every day of my life was ordained when I was still inside my mother. And the same is true of each of you. God ordained every single day of your life while you were still developing in your mother's womb. Job 33 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. My life, my very life, the breath that I breathe, the breath that you breathe, has been ordained by God himself. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Back to Job 14. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. His limits mean the days, the span of his life. Psalm 116, uh, one of my favorite verses. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I use this verse at every graveside service that I've done. Because the moment a person passes from this earthly life into this heavenly life, that moment is precious in God's sight. And it's as if God, it's not only as if, it is because God has ordained that moment. He has determined that moment when a person passes from this life to that. And it's like God has you cupped in his huge, mighty, beautiful, righteous right hands and said, now is the time you come. You come to me because it's a precious moment. You see, this is how God sees our life. This is how God sees life. This is how he sees your life. Sacred, reflecting him. Every person on the planet bears God's image. Every single person on the planet bears God's image. Reflecting him. Every single person's life is precious and sacred. So this is the backdrop of commandment number six. That's in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Okay? You shall not murder. What does murder mean? Murder simply means, is a a dictionary definition, the unlawful and malicious or premeditated killing of one human being by another. I don't think I need to go into a whole lot of depth on this. I think it's pretty black and white for us, right? You don't kill somebody. That's what that means. That's That's what this means. But there is more to it. God is the author of life and even death. God determines the beginning and he has determined the end. When we understand how precious a human's life is in God's sight, we then come to an understanding of the abomination it is to God when we condone or participate in abortion, in euthanasia, in suicide, in homicide. When we participate and we condone these things, which all are ending a person's life 
before God has ordained that that life comes to an end. It's as if we are usurping God's authority and we are taking his place and we are then determining when somebody's life should come to an end. That's a fearful place to be. You shall not murder. But I want to move right along into the New Testament. In that famous passage um, on the side of the mountain when Jesus is teaching. It's in Matthew 5. Would you please turn there at this time? Matthew 5. Verses 21 and on. Matthew 5, 21. As you know, when Jesus comes on the scene here on earth 2,000 years ago and began his teaching ministry, he turned everything on its head. Because the old law said you should not murder. And I want you all to know I stand before you to say I've never murdered somebody. Never done it. Don't anticipate doing it. Could I? I am capable of that. Absolutely. And so when I read the law and the Ten Commandments, should not murder, I'm good. Done that. But then I come to Matthew 21 where Jesus speaks to this. And he says, Matthew 5, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. There is a consequence that comes right along with it. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, it just got changed. Wait a minute. It went from murder to now anger. But he's not done. <laughs> whoever insults his brother will be liable to, to the council. Insulting, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, there are three things that Jesus is saying here. Anger, insulting, and calling somebody a fool. He's equating that with murder. Yeah, you feel like you're skating along, you haven't killed anybody, but let me just tell you what we're really talking about. Harboring anger. Um, in the other translations, manuscript says anger without cause. Harboring anger towards another is as good as murder. Insulting your brother, calling them raka is what this says. That word raka means you empty-headed one. You are worthless, you're an idiot. That's what that means. It's as good as murdering somebody or saying you fool to his brother. You fool, you dull, stupid, foolish, uneducated numbskull. <laughs> In 1 John 3, it says this, listen to this. 1 John three fifteen. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That word hate means hate or detest. It's about what is in the heart. All of this now is about what is in our heart. Because when we hate, we detest, we, we look down on and we put down others, it's, it's as if we are now assuming a position of authority over another. We call that a superiority complex. 
that I feel better about myself because I look at somebody else and I see their faults and I feel better about myself. And I even detest them. It means to be remaining at odds with another. It's unreconciled with somebody because you're angry with them or whatever it may be. It's an unresolved issue. Jesus is saying that's as good as murder. It's even more ser- it gets even more serious. Even Pastor Mike talked about this last week where it says, go on in, um, in verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, stop. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's how critical it is if there is something in our heart, there is anger in our heart, there is something in our heart that is against a brother or a sister. Jesus is saying, stop everything you are doing and go make it right. The implication here has everything to do with the preciousness of life, how God sees your life and mine and everybody's life, and then the fact that we are made in his image. Since each and every person carries the image of God to kill them, to insult them, to put them down, to cause them to stumble, to harbor anger against them, is to somehow denigrate, disparage, malign, defame, or even dim God's image in them. It is a reflection on, their, on the image of God in the other person. Somehow it will diminish the image of God in them. In other words, it's as if when I am harboring anger or bitterness towards somebody else or a superior attitude towards somebody, it's as if I am throwing dirt on the image of God. It's as if I am saying... I am aiming my anger at God himself because he's made that person in his image. You see the direct connection between the image of God in each of us and God himself. If we were just to take a moment to close our eyes and ask God to bring somebody to mind that we have been or are harboring anger against and take a new look at that person in light of that person bearing the image of God, what difference would it make? Think of that person and say to yourself, she bears God's image. He bears God's image. You can say their name. That person bears God's image. Perhaps this prayer should be part of our daily quiet time with the Lord. Lord, is there someone in my life who I have anger or contempt for? Help me to see them as you do, as a precious life 
who is bearing your image. I confess my arrogance before you, O God. Help me to turn from this prideful place as I humbly acknowledge my desperate need for you. One thing that video did not show was a homeless person. Our office is right downtown. And so we go to the office, we're right downtown, right on Lincoln Street, and there are many homeless we see all the time. And it's easy to have an attitude of superiority, isn't it? It's like, what's their problem? Or whatever. You can say whatever you want. But God turns this whole thing upside down and goes, that person that you see with the grocery cart, with all their stuff in there, bears my image. I'd like just to turn us around for a minute. Instead of saying you should not murder, instead say you should preserve life. You should count life precious in everybody that you see and in everybody that you encounter. Preserve life, build each other up, promote unity. In Ephesians 4, we read, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We become builders rather than murderers, tearing one another down and destroying the image of God in one another. So, as I conclude this message, that's your cue, my brother. Okay, worship team. (laughs) In conclusion... My prayer, you all, you know, when you, when you get to preach on these things, God does it convicting all week long. When we look at somebody else with any kind of contempt, all it does is speak to our own arrogance. Bottom line. Jesus saying when you are arrogant and you look down on somebody, it's as if you are killing them. It's as if you are stamping out the image of God in them. I go, I don't want to mess with God's image in somebody else. I want no part of damaging, of uh, throwing shade, of doing anything that would dampen the image of God in somebody else. I don't want to mess with that. And that's why... Jesus takes it so seriously. Because you are messing with what God is doing in the life of somebody else as he reflects his own image in that person.
my prayer for all of us as we leave here shortly, not only today, but as you go through this week, that you pray, God, show me in my own heart how I'm seeing others. And repent. Even as David repented when Nathan pointed out to him what his sin was, David says in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. And I'll tell you what, because David was guilty of murder. And now we are guilty of murder as we dim the image of God and somebody else. So our confession ought to be the same. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before my eyes. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. There was just great irony when Jesus was on the cross. When he was on the cross, he was being murdered. He was being killed unjustly. It was murder. And as he was on the cross, dying, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The injustice of being murdered in that moment, our Savior said, I offer you forgiveness of your sin. He allowed himself to be murdered so that we could be forgiven. Oh, what a beautiful truth. Amen? And then he offers that to us as his followers. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. I love that faithful word. I'm telling you, I love that word because I'm always having to confess, Lord, I'm sorry. He is faithful to forgive us. And not only that, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Lord, we give you thanks. It is a tall order, Lord, for our thought life to not look down on others because we are human, Lord, and we get our eyes off of you at times. And in our flesh, in our ego, in our pride, Lord, we want to make ourselves feel or look better because we want to feed ourselves, our flesh. Oh God, we, for, we, we confess this before you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for what you have done on the cross, Lord Jesus, Lamb of God. You willingly gave up your life, Lord, that we might be free from the bondage of sin, that we would be forgiven when we do sin, and we can walk in victory. Oh, Lord, thank you. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name.